The Spirit of God seemed to be moving upon the face of the waters at that time, and who knows but that to a great many souls God was pleased to say, Let there be light, and there was light. Tuesday, September 23rd. Went this morning with Dr. Coleman, the secretary to Roxbury, three miles from Boston, to see the Reverend Mr. Walter, a good old Puritan, who with his predecessor, the Reverend Mr. Elliot, commonly called the Apostle of the Indians, now with God, has been pastor of that congregation in 106 years. Thursday, September 25th, preached a weekly lecture at Mr. Foxcross Meeting House. Here the Lord was pleased to enable me, feelingly to talk of my dearest Savior's love, and I afterwards found that one stranger in particular was in all probability effectually convinced of that morning's sermon. After public worship, I went at His Excellency's invitations and dined with the governor. Most of the ministers of the town were invited with me. Before dinner, the governor sent for me up into his chamber. He wept wished me good luck in the name of the Lord, and recommended himself, ministers, and people to my prayers. Friday, September 26th, preached in the morning at Roxbury, with a little ascent to many thousand people, with much of the divine presence amongst us. Several, I think, came afterwards to tell me how they were struck at that time under the word. September 27th, preached in the morning at Mr. Wellstead's meeting house, and in the afternoon on the common to about 15,000 people. But oh, how did the word run! After sermon, I visited and prayed with two different persons, and then went home to my lodging. The power and presence of the Lord accompanied me and followed. Many now wept bitterly and cried out under the word like persons that were really hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And after I left them, God gave me to wrestle with them in my chamber in behalf of some dear friends then present, and others that were absent from us. September 28th, in the evening preached to a great number of Negroes on the conversion of the Ethiopian Acts 8 at which the poor creatures, as well as many white people, were much affected, and at my return gave a word of exhortation to a crowd of people who were waiting at my lodgings. My animal spirits were almost exhausted, and my legs, through expensive sweating and vomiting, almost ready to sink under me. But the Lord visited my soul, and I went to bed greatly refreshed with divine consolations. September 29th, rode to Salem, four miles from Marblehead, and preached there also to about two thousand here the Lord manifested forth His glory. One was, I believe, struck down by the power of the Word. In every part of the congregation, persons might be seen under great concern. And one Mr. Cook, a good minister, as is granted by all lovers of God, seemed to be almost in heaven. Portsmouth, October 1st, preached to a polite auditory and so very unconcerned that I began to question whether I had been preaching to rational or brute creatures. Seeing no immediate effects of the word preached, I was a little dejected. But God sent one young man to me crying out in great anguish of spirit, What shall I do to be saved? Friday, October 3rd. Preached this morning at Portsmouth to a far greater congregation than before. Instead of preaching to dead stocks, I had now reason to believe I was preaching to living men. People began to melt soon after I began to pray, and the power increased more and more during the whole sermon. The word seemed to pierce through and through, and carried such conviction along with it that many who before had industriously spoken evil of me were ashamed of themselves. A fellow minister wrote afterwards, You have left great numbers under deep impressions, and I trust in God they will not wear off, but that the convictions of some will be kept up and cherished till they have had their desired effect. Amen and amen. Boston, October 8th, preached in Mr. Webb's meeting house, both morning and evening to the very great auditories, both times, especially in the morning, Jesus Christ manifested forth His glory. Many hearts melted within them, 
And I think I never was so drawn out to pray for and invite little children to Jesus Christ as I was this morning. A little before I heard of a child who was taken sick just before it had heard me preach and said he would go to Mr. Whitfield's God and died in a short time. This encouraged me to speak to little ones. But oh, how were the old people affected when I said, Little children, if your parents will not come to Christ, do you come and go to heaven without them? There seemed to be but a few dry eyes. Look where I would, the word smote them. I believed through and through, and my own soul was very much carried out. October 9th. A ticket was put up to me, wherein I was desired to pray for a person just entered upon the ministry, but under apprehensions that he was not converted. God enabled me to pray for him with my whole heart. October 10th. Busy from the moment I rose until I went out, and answering poor souls that came to me under great distress. About nine went to Mr. Cooper over Charleston Ferry, where I preached. Immediately after dinner, we hastened to Reading, twelve miles from Charleston, where I preached to many thousands and observed considerable moving in the congregation. We turned and supped with Mr. All, was weak, very weak in the body, but was refreshed to hear of a poor girl who was found sitting at the gate in the cold. Upon being examined by a truly experienced friend, he found she was under very strong convictions and had followed me from Roxbury. She said she wanted nothing but Christ and Christ she would have. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord, let this promise be fulfilled in her heart. October 11th. One little girl about eight years old came to me under deep concern. She, as her friends told, had been wrestling for Christ. And while she was wrestling, it came to her mind that Jesus, being in an agony, prayed yet so much and more earnestly, and that an angel was sent from heaven to strengthen him. This encouraged her to persevere, and her soul soon received some comfort. Another minister's daughter has been quite restless after Christ night and day, and a young man about fourteen came to me crying and saying, Sir, I am convicted but not converted. Oh, pray for me. New Heaven, October 25th. Was refreshed this morning by the sight of Mr. Jedediah Mills, a dear man of God, minister at Ripton near Stratford. He wrote to me some time ago, I felt his letter, and now also I felt the man. My soul was much united to him. He has had a remarkable work in his parish some time ago, and talked like one that was no novice in divine things. With him I dined at the Reverend Mr. C.'s rector of New Haven College, about one-third part as big as that of Cambridge. It has one rector, three tutors, and about an hundred students. I preached twice to the consolation of God's people, many of which I had heard live at New Haven and the countries round about. There were sweet meltings discernible both times. I spoke to the students and showed the dreadful ill consequences of an unconverted ministry. Dear Mr. Mills, when he took his leave, told me of one minister in particular who had been wrought upon before, but now was gone home as full as he could hold. Oh, that God may quicken ministers. Oh, that the Lord may make them a flaming fire. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen and amen. I am reading now again from the memoirs of Jonathan Edwards, because Whitfield had preached at Edwards Church at Northampton, New England. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And the reason why was because of some of the excesses that had happened under many people's preaching, including Whitfield's. I quote from his memoirs. This was doubtless owing in some degree to the fact that many ministers of wisdom and sound discretion 
not adverting sufficiently to the extent and importance of the apostolic exhortation that all things be done decently and in order, either encourage or did not effectually suppress outcries, falling down and swooning in the time of public and social worship, the speaking and praying of women in the church, and in mixed assemblies the meeting of children by themselves for religious worship, and singing and praying aloud in the streets, but far more to the unrestrained zeal of a considerable number of misguided men, some of them preachers of the gospel and others lay exhorters, who intending to take George Whitfield as their model, traveled from place to place, preaching and exhorting wherever they could collect an audience, pronounced definitively and unhesitatingly with respect to the piety of individuals, both ministers and private Christians, and whenever they judged a minister or a majority of a church destitute of piety, which they usually did, not on account of their false principles or their irreligious life, but for the want of an ardour and zeal equal to their own, advised in the one case the whole church to withdraw from the minister, and in the other a minority to separate themselves from the majority and to form a distinct church and congregation. This indiscreet advice had at times too much influence and occasioned in some places the sundering of churches and congregations. In others, the removal of ministers, and in others, the separation of individuals from the communion of their brethren. It thus introduced contention and quarrels into churches and families, alienated ministers from each other and from their people, and produced in the places where these consequences were most discernible a widespread and riveted prejudice against revivals of religion. It is deserving, perhaps, of inquiry whether the subsequent slumber of the American church for nearly seventy years may not be ascribed in an important degree to the fatal reaction of these unhappy measures. There can be no doubt that on George Whitfield, although by his multiplied and successful labors, he was the means of incalculable good to the churches of America, as well as to those of England and Scotland, these evils are to a considerable degree to be charged, as having first led the way in this career of irregularity and disorder. He did not go so far as some of his followers, but he opened a wide door and went great lengths in these forbidden paths, and his imitators having less discretion and experience, ventured under the cover of his example, even beyond the limits which he himself was afraid to pass. His published journals show that he was accustomed to decide too authoritatively whether others, particularly ministers, were converted, as well as to insist that churches ought to remember those whom they regard as his unconverted ministers, and that individual Christians or minorities of churches where a majority refused to do this were bound to separate themselves. Jonathan Edwards, wholly disapproving of this conduct, conversed with George Whitfield freely in the presence of others about his practice of pronouncing ministers and other members of the Christian church unconverted, and declares that he supposed him to be of the opinion that unconverted ministers ought not to be continued in the ministry, and that he supposed he endeavored to propagate this opinion in a practice agreeable thereto. The same may be said in the substance of Mr. Gilbert Tennant, Mr. Finley, and Mr. Davenport, all of whom became early convinced of their error, and with Christian sincerity openly acknowledged it. At the same time, while these things were to be regretted in themselves, and still more so in their unhappy consequences, the evidence is clear that, in far the greater number of places, these irregularities and disorders, if in any degree prevalent, were never predominant, and that the attention to religion in these places, while it continued, was most obviously a great and powerful work of the Spirit of God. The testimony of the ministers of those places on these points is explicit. It is given with great caution and with the utmost candor, it acknowledges frankly the evils then experienced, and it details the actual moral change wrought in individuals, 
and in society at large in such a manner that no one who believes in regeneration as a work of the Holy Spirit can doubt that this change was effected by the finger of God. The following letter to Jonathan Edwards is by Gilbert Tennant, greatly used in the revivals and worked alongside of Whitfield. Reverend and dear sir, I rejoice to hear that my poor labors have been of any service to any in New England. All glory be to the great and glorious God. When out of the mouths of babes and sucklings he is pleased sometimes to ordain praise. I rejoice to hear the progress of God's work among you this last summer, and that there are any appearances of its continuance. Blessed be God, dear brother, and to the subject you mention of laymen being sent out to exhort and to teach, supposing them to be real converts, I, can, I cannot but think if it be encouraged and continued, it will be of dreadful consequence to the church's peace and soundness in the faith. I will not gainsay but that private persons may be of service to the church of God by private, humble, fraternal reproof and exhortations, and no doubt it is their duty to be faithful in these things. But in the meantime, if Christian prudence and humility do not attend their essays, they are like to be prejudicial to the church's real well-being. But for ignorant young converts to take upon them authoritatively to instruct and exhort publicly tends to introduce the greatest errors and the grossest anarchy and confusion. The ministers of Christ should be apt to teach and able to convince gainsayers, and it is dangerous to the pure church of God when those are novices whose lips should preserve knowledge. It is base presumption, whatever zeal be pretended to, notwithstanding for any persons to take this honor to themselves, unless they be called of God as Aaron. I know most young zealots are apt through ignorance, inconsideration, and pride of heart to undertake what they have no proper qualifications for, and through their imprudences and enthusiasm the church of God suffers. I think all that fear God should rise up and crush the enthusiastic creature in the egg. Dear brother, the times we live in are dangerous. The, church, the churches in America and elsewhere are in great hazard of enthusiasm. We have May Zion's king protect his church. I add no more but love and beg a remembrance in your prayers. Gilbert Tennant The September after this, Jonathan Edwards attending the public commencement of New Haven and on the 10th of that month, preached his celebrated sermon entitled Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, which in consequence of a general request from the clergy, and other gentlemen attending the commencement was published soon after in Boston. This sermon, by exhibiting the distinguishing marks between an imaginary and real work of the Spirit of God, and by applying those marks to the work of grace then begun, and rapidly spreading throughout the northern and middle colonies, became an unanswerable defense, not only of that, but of all genuine revivals of religion. It was indeed the object of immediate and reiterated attacks from the press, but being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, it stands sure, while those attacks and their authors are forgotten. It exhibits the scriptural evidences of a genuine revival of religion in much the same manner as his subsequent treatise on religious affections does those of genuine conversion. Mr. Cooper thus introduces it to the Christians of New England, quote, If any are disposed to receive conviction, have a mind open to light, and are really willing to know of the present work, whether it be of God, it is with great satisfaction and pleasure I can recommend them to the following sheets, in which they will find the distinguishing marks of such a work as they are to be found in the Holy Scriptures applied to the uncommon operation that has been on the minds of many in this land. Here the manner is tried by the infallible touchstone of the Holy Scriptures and is weighed in the balance of the sanctuary with great judgment and impartiality. A performance of this kind is seasonable and necessary, and I desire heartily to bless God who inclined this his servant to undertake it, 
and has greatly assisted him in it. The reverend author is known to be a scribe instructed unto the kingdom of heaven. The place where he has been called to exercise his ministry has been famous for experimental religion. And he has had opportunities to observe this work in many places where it has powerfully appeared and to converse with numbers that have been the subjects of it. These things qualify him for this undertaking above most. His arguments in favor of the work are strongly drawn from Scripture, reason, and experience. And I shall believe every candid judicious reader will say he writes very free from an enthusiastic or a party spirit. The use of human learning is asserted. A methodical way of preaching, the fruit of study as well as prayer is recommended, and the exercise of charity in judging others pressed and urged. And those things which are esteemed the blemishes and are like to be the hindrances of the work are with great faithfulness cautioned and warned against. Many, I believe, will be thankful for this publication. When Mr. Hopkins first heard Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this. When I heard Gilbert Tennant, I thought he was the greatest and best man and the best preacher that I had ever seen or heard. His words were to me like apples of gold and pictures of silver. And I thought that when I should leave the college, as I was then in my last year, I would go and live with him wherever I should find him. But just before the commencement in September, when I was to take my degree on the seventh day, of which month I was twenty years old, Jonathan Edwards of Northampton came to New Haven and preached. He then preached a sermon on the trial of the spirits, which was afterwards printed. I had before read his sermons on justification and so on, and his narrative of remarkable conversions at Northampton, which took, which took place about seven years before this, though I then did not obtain any personal acquaintance with him, any further than by hearing him preach. Yet I conceived such an esteem of him, and was so pleased with his preaching, that I altered my former determination with respect to Gilbert Tennant, and concluded to go and live with Mr. Edwards as soon as I should have opportunity, though I lived about 80 miles from my father's house." Quote. The following letter is from Jonathan Edwards to Mr. Bellamy. Northampton, January 21, 1742. Reverend and dear sir, I received yours of January 11th, for which I thank you. Religion in this and the neighboring towns has now of late been on the decay in hand. I desire your prayers that God would quicken and revive us again, and particularly that He would greatly humble and pardon and quicken me and fill me with His own fullness. And if it may consist with His will and prove me as an instrument to revive His work, there has been the year past the most wonderful work among children here by far that ever was. God has seemed almost holy to take a new generation that had come on since the late great work seven years ago. Neither earth nor hell can hinder His work that is going on in the country. Christ gloriously triumphs at this day. You have probably before now heard of the great and wonderful things that have lately been happening at Portsmouth, the chief town in New Hampshire. There are also appearing great things at Ipswich and Newbury, the two largest towns in this province except Boston, and several other towns beyond Boston, and some towns nearer. But what I can understand, the work of God is greater at this day in the land than it has been at any time. Oh, what cause have we with exulting hearts to agree to give glory to Him who thus rides forth in the chariot of His salvation, conquering and to conquer, and earnestly to pray that now the Son of Righteousness would come forth like a bridegroom, rejoicing as a giant, to run His race from one end of the heavens to the other, that nothing may be hid from the light and the heat thereof. It is not probable that I shall be able to attend your meeting at Guilford. I have lately been so much gone from my people, and don't know but I must be obliged to leave him again next week about a fortnight, being called to Leicester, a town about halfway to Boston, where a great work of grace has lately commenced, and probably soon after that to another place, 
and having at this time some extraordinary affairs to attend to at home. I pray that Christ, our Good Shepherd, will be with you and direct you and greatly strengthen and bless you. Dear sir, I have none of those books you speak of to sell. I have only a few that I intend to send to some of my friends. I have already sent you one of my New Haven sermons by Mr. Nevertheless, I have herewith sent another which I desire you to give to Mr. Mills if he has none. But if he has one, dispose of it where you think it will do most good. I have also sent one of those sermons I preached at Enfield. As to the other, I have but one of them in the world. I am, dear sir, your affectionate and unworthy brother and fellow laborer, Jonathan Edwards. As I mentioned before, Mr. Hopkins had desired to live with Gilbert Tennant first and then Mr. Edwards. Quote, In the month of December, Mr. Hopkins observes, being furnished with a horse, I set out for Northampton with a view to live with Mr. Edwards where I was an utter stranger. When I arrived there, Mr. Edwards was not at home but I was received with great kindness by Mrs. Edwards and the family and had encouragement that I might live there during the winter. Mr. Edwards was absent on a preaching tour as people in generally were greatly attentive to religion and preaching which was attended with remarkable effects in the conviction and supposed conversion of multitudes. I was very gloomy and was most of the time retired in my chamber. After some days, Mrs. Edwards came into my chamber and said, As I was now become a member of the family for a season, she felt herself interested in my welfare, and as she observed that I appeared gloomy and dejected, she hoped I would not think she intruded by her desiring to know and asking me what was the occasion of it or to that purpose. I told her the freedom she used was agreeable to me, that the occasion of the appearance which she mentioned was the state in which I considered myself. I was in a crisis, graceless state, and bid under a degree of conviction and concern for myself for a number of months. had got no relief, and my case, instead of growing better, appeared to grow worse upon which she entered into a free conversation, and on the whole she told me that she had peculiar exercises in prayer respecting me, since I had been in the family, that she trusted I should receive light and comfort, and doubted not that God intended yet to do great things by me. Religion was now at a lower ebb at Northampton than it had been of late, and then it appeared to be in the neighboring towns and in New England in general. In the month of January, Mr. Buell, my classmate, came to Northampton having commenced a zealous preacher of the gospel and was the means of greatly reviving the people to zeal in religion. He preached every day and sometimes twice a day publicly, Jonathan Edwards being out of town preaching in distant towns. Professing Christians appeared greatly revived and comforted, and a number were under conviction, and I think there were some hopeful new converts. After Mr. Buell had been in Northampton a week or two, he set out on a tour towards Boston, in quote. Having thus alluded to the religious state of Northampton at this period, so far as was necessary to exhibit the order and connection of events, we now proceed to give Jonathan Edwards' own account of the revival of religion in that town in 1740-1742, as communicated in a letter to a minister of Boston. Northampton, December 12, 1743. Reverend and dear sir, ever since the great work of God that has wrought here about nine years ago, there has been a great and abiding alteration in this town in many respects. There has been vastly more religion kept up in the town among all sorts of persons in religious exercises and in common conversation. There has been a great alteration among the youth of the town with respect to revelry, frolicking, profane and licentious conversation, and lewd songs. And there has also been a great alteration amongst both old and young with regard to tavern haunting. I suppose the town has been in no measure so free of vice in these respects, 
for any long time together for sixty years as it has been these nine years past. There has also been an evident alteration with respect to a charitable spirit to the poor, though I think with regard to this we in this town as well as in the land in general come far short of the gospel rules. And though after that great work nine years ago there has been a very lamentable decay of religious affections and the engagedness of people's spirit in religion, yet many societies for prayer and social worship were all along kept up, and there were some few instances of awakening and deep concern about the things of another world, even in the most dead time. In the year 1740, in the spring, before George Whitfield came to this town, there was a visible alteration. There was more seriousness and religious conversation, especially among young people. Those things that were of ill tendency among them were foreborn, and it was a very frequent thing for persons to consult their ministers upon the salvation of their souls. And in some particular persons there appeared a great attention about that time. And thus it continued until Mr. Whitfield came to town, which was about the middle of October following. He preached here four sermons in the meeting house, besides the private lecture at my house, one on Friday, another on Saturday, and two upon the Sabbath. The congregation was extraordinarily melted by every sermon, almost the whole assembly being in tears for a great part of sermon time. Mr. Whitfield's sermons were suitable to the circumstances of the town, containing a just reproof of our backslidings, and in a most moving and affectionate manner, making use of our great professions and great mercies as arguments with us to return to God from whom we had departed. Immediately after this, the minds of the people in general appeared more engaged in religion, showing a great forwardness to make religion the subject of their conversation, and to meet frequently for religious purposes, and to embrace all opportunities to hear the word preached. The revival at first appeared chiefly among professors, and those that had entertained hope that they were in a state of salvation, to whom Mr. Whitfield chiefly addressed himself, but in a very short time there appeared an awakening and deep concern among some young persons that looked upon themselves in a crisis state, and there were some hopeful appearances of conversion, and some professors were greatly revived. In about a month or six weeks there was a great attention in the town, both as to the revival of professors and the awakening of others. By the middle of December a considerable work of God appeared among those that were very young, and the revival of religion continued to increase so that in the spring an engagedness of spirit about the things of religion was become very general amongst young people and children, and religious subjects almost wholly took up their conversation when they were together. In the month of 1741, a sermon was preached to a company at a private house. Near the conclusion of the discourse, one or two persons that were professors were so greatly affected with the sense of the greatness and glory of divine things and the infinite importance of the things of eternity that they were not able to conceal it, the affection of their minds overcoming their strength and having a very visible effect upon their bodies. When the exercises were over, the young people that were present removed into the other room for religious conference, and particularly that they might have opportunity to inquire of those that were thus affected what apprehensions they had and what things they were that thus deeply impressed their minds. And there soon appeared a very great effect of their conversation, and the affection was quickly propagated throughout the room. Many of the young people and children that were professors appeared to be overcome with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things, and with admiration, love, joy, and praise, and compassion to others that looked upon themselves as in a state of nature, and many others at the same time were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable estate and condition, so that the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, and the like. Others soon heard of it in several parts of the town and came to them, and what they saw and heard there was greatly affecting to them, 
so that many of them were overpowered in like manner, and it continued thus for some hours, the time being spent in prayer, singing, counseling, and conferring. There seemed to be a consequent happy effect of that meeting to several particular persons and on the state of religion in the town in general. After this there were meetings from time to time attended with like appearances. But a little after it, at the conclusion of the public exercises on the Sabbath, I appointed the children that were under seventeen years of age to go from the meeting house to a neighboring house, that I might there further enforce what they had heard in public, and might, and might give in some counsels proper for their age. The children were there very generally and greatly affected with the warnings and counsels that were given them, and many exceedingly overcome, and the room was filled with cries, and when they were dismissed they almost all of them went home crying aloud through the streets to all parts of the town. The alike appearances attended several such meetings of children that were appointed. Their affections appeared by what followed to be one of a very different nature, and many they appeared indeed but childish affections, and in a day or two would leave them as they were before. Others were deeply impressed. Their convictions took fast hold of them and abode by them, and there were some that, from one meeting to another, seemed extraordinarily affected for some time to but little purpose, their affections presently vanishing from time to time, but yet afterwards were seized with abiding convictions and their affections became durable. About the middle of the summer I called together the young people that were communicants from 16 to 26 years of age to my house, which proved to be a most happy meeting. Many seemed to be very greatly and most agreeably affected with those views which excited humility, self-condemnation, self-abhorrence, love and joy. Many fainted under these affections. We had several meetings that summer of young people attended with like appearances. It was about that time that there first began to be cryings out in the meeting house, which several times occasioned many of the congregation to stay in the house after the public exercises were over, to confer with those who seemed to be overcome with religious convictions and affections, which was found to tend much to the propagation of their impressions, with lasting effect upon many, conference being at these times commonly joined with prayer and singing. In the summer and autumn, the children in various parts of the town had religious meetings by themselves for prayer, sometimes joined with fasting, wherein many of them seemed to be greatly and properly affected, and I hope some of them savingly wrought upon. The months of August and September were the most remarkable of any this year for appearances of the conviction and conversion of sinners, and great revivants, quickenings, and comforts of professors, and for extraordinary external effects of these things. It was a very frequent thing to see a house full of outcries, faintings, and convulsions, and such like, both with distress and with admiration and joy. It was not the manner here to hold meetings all night, as in some places, nor was it common to continue them till very late in the night, but it was pretty often so that there were some that were so affected and their bodies so overcome that they could not go home but were obliged to stay all night where they were. There was no difference that I know of here with regard to these extraordinary effects in meetings in the night and in the daytime, the meetings in which these effects appeared in the evening being commonly begun, and their extraordinary effects in the day and continued in the evening. And some meetings have been very remarkable for such extraordinary effects that were both begun and finished in the daytime. There was an appearance of a glorious progress of the work of God upon the hearts of sinners and conviction and conversion this summer and autumn. In great numbers, I think we have reason to hope, were brought savingly home to Christ. But this was remarkable. The work of God and His influences of this nature seemed to be almost wholly upon a new generation. Those that were not come to years of discretion in that wonderful season nine years ago, 
children, or those that were then children, others, others who had enjoyed that former glorious opportunity without any appearance of saving benefit, seem now to be almost wholly passed over and let alone. But now we had the most wonderful work among children that ever was in Northampton. The former outpouring of the Spirit was remarkable for influences upon the minds of children, beyond all that had ever been seen before. But this far exceeded that. Indeed, as to influences on the minds of professors, this work was by no means confined to a new generation. Many of all ages partook of it, but yet in this respect it was more general on those that were of the young sort. Many who had been formerly wrought upon, and in the time of our declension had fallen into decay, and had in a great measure left God and gone after the world, now passed under a very remarkable new work of the Spirit of God, as they had been the subjects of a second conversion. They were first led into the wilderness and had a work of conviction, having much deeper convictions of the sins of both nature and practice than ever before, though with some new circumstances and something new in the kind of conviction in some, with great distress beyond what they had felt before their first conversion. Under these convictions, they were exceedingly excited to strive for salvation, and the kingdom of heaven suffered violence from some of them in a far more remarkable manner than before. And after great convictions and humblings and agonizing with God, they had Christ discovered to them anew as an all-sufficient Savior, and in all the glories of His grace, and in a far more clear manner than before, and with greater humility, self-emptiness, and brokenness of heart, and a purer, a higher joy, and greater desires after holiness of life, but with greater self-diffidence and distrust of their treacherous hearts. One circumstance wherein this work differed from that which has been in the town five or six years before was that conversions were frequently wrought more sensibly and visibly, the impression stronger and more manifest by their external effects, the progress of the Spirit of God and conviction from step to step more apparent, and the transition from one state to another more sensible and plain, so that it might in many instances be as it were seen by bystanders. The preceding season had been very remarkable on this account beyond what had been before, but this more remarkable than that. And in this season these apparent or visible conversions, if I may so call them, were more frequent in the presence of others at religious meetings, where the appearance of what was wrought on the heart fell under public observation. After September 1741, there seemed to be some abatement of these extraordinary appearances, yet they did not wholly cease but there was something of them from time to time all winter. About the beginning of February 1742, Mr. Buell came to this town. I was then absent from home and continued so till about a fortnight after. Mr. Buell preached from day to day almost every day in the meeting house. I had left to him the free use of my pulpit, having heard of his design visit before I went from home. He spent almost the whole time in religious exercises with the people, either in public or private, the people, the people continually thronging him. When he first came, there came with him a number of the zealous people from Suffolk, who continued here for some time. There were very extraordinary effects of Mr. Buell's labors. The people were exceedingly moved, crying out in great numbers in the meeting house, and a great number of the congregation commonly staying in the house of God for hours after the public service. Many also were exceedingly moved in private meetings where Mr. Buell was. Almost the whole town seemed to be in a great and continual commotion day and night, and there was indeed a very great revival of religion, but it was principally among professors. The appearances of a work of conversion were in no measure as great as they had been the summer before. 
When I came home, I found the town in very extraordinary circumstances, such as, in some respects, I never saw it in before. Mr. Buell continued here a fortnight or three weeks after I returned. There being still great appearances attending his labors, many in their religious affections being raised far beyond what they had ever seen before. And there were some instances of persons lying in a sort of trance, remaining perhaps for a whole twenty-four hours motionless and with their senses locked up, but in the meantime under strong imaginations as though they went to heaven and had there a vision of glorious and delightful objects. But when the people were raised to this height, Satan took the advantage, and in his interposition, in many instances soon became very apparent, and a great deal of caution and pains were found necessary to keep the people, many of them, from running wild. In the month of March, I led the people into a solemn public renewal of their covenant with God. To that end, having made a draft of a covenant, I first proposed it to some of the principal men of the church, then to the people in their several religious associations in various parts of the town, then to the whole congregation in public, and then I deposited a copy of it in the hands of each of the four deacons, that all who desired it might resort to them and have opportunity to view and consider it. Then the people in general that were above fourteen years of age first subscribed the covenant with their hands, and then on a day of fasting and prayer altogether presented themselves before the Lord in His house, and stood up and solemnly manifested their consent to it as their vow to God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.